welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Good morning, everyone. How are we all doing today? We doing good? I mean, all things considered, right? Because life is weird and has been for a couple of years now, hasn't it? Man, I don't know about you guys, but if, if we can be honest for just a minute here, are you guys exhausted yet? Are we change tired? Are we just weary? I am. If you're not, you can pray for me at the end of the service. But my goodness, and, and I don't know about you, but I kind of just keep wondering, like, is there ever going to not be another layer to all this? Um, you know, I, we arrived in the UK a couple of days ago, and I'm not great at sleeping on planes. I've tried to acquire that trait, and it hasn't worked yet. And uh, so after a uh, overnight flight, in which I may have negotiated 60 minutes of restless sleep, um, you know, we flip our phones back on, and I see that uh, Putin has invaded Ukraine while I've been in the air. And, it, you know, and for me, just that moment kind of in a way felt symbolic of what this whole season has been. Where it's, you know, it's kind of like I'm, I'm just trying to find a way to make it through this. And then over and over and over again, something comes from the side where it's like, again? Another? Okay, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. And what I want to talk about today is how can we get what we need from our faith in times like now? You know, if there's ever been a time when a vibrant relationship with God that ministers to us and gives us life, gives us strength, gives us peace and vitality. If there's ever been a time where that's what we need, is it not right now? If our faith isn't real to us in this moment, I'm not sure what good it's really doing us. And so I want to talk about that today. And as I've been kind of reflecting and, and exploring how to, how to think about things like that biblically, I, I keep finding myself coming back to the stories of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness after they've left Egypt. There's something about that that feels resonant with our current reality. We've left something, and we're wandering kind of day by day through confusing territory. This probably isn't where we're going to land forever. We have a sense that there's something ahead, although if we're honest, we don't really know what that's going to be. But we know that this is not normal, although we hope this is temporary. And, and the Israelites were in that same kind of experience. Of course, they were in that experience for a whole lot longer than I hope we're in it. Uh, 40 years they spent wandering the wilderness. I'm praying that it, closing in on two, that this is hopefully starting to wind down. We'll wind up seeing. But there's, there's something, I think, about the way that God led them through that process that might be really deeply informative for us. So what I'd love to do today, if, if we're willing, is I'd love to take some time and I'd love to reflect on one of the things that God did in their journey through the wilderness 
and see what might that mean for us as we journey through our own, not physical wilderness, but I don't know, whatever this is, (laughs) which sort of feels wilderness-like to me, at least, if that makes sense. So if you have Bibles, I I wasn't organized enough to um, send the scriptures in advance so they could be on the slides. I'm not sure if that's normally what you do, but if that is normally what you do, then the bad is on me for that not happening this morning. Um, But I will tell you where we're going to be in the Bible. So if you brought um, a Bible, either the old school retro style like this, um, or you've got one on your your phone or whatever, um, we're going to take a little bit of time. We're going to read through a part of the book of Exodus. And so um, if you want to just listen, that's no problem at all. But if you want to read with me, you can turn, you can swipe your way to Exodus 16. And we're going to look a little bit at this interesting thing that God does with the Israelites as they begin their journey through the wilderness. In Exodus 16, starting in verse 2, we have this this passage. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This this is picking up in the story right after the Israelites have crossed through the Red Sea. So Moses has showed up, let my people go, showdown with Pharaoh, 10 plagues, high drama. They think it's over. Then surprise, it's not over. Pharaoh and his chariots are there. What are we going to do? God parts the Red Sea, splits it in half. They go through. Um, The Egyptians try and follow. Oops, not so much. That's over. And then the Israelites, oh my goodness, they have been delivered from Egypt. God has showed up for them powerfully. They're excited. They kind of throw a party on the other side. And then a couple of days later, reality starts setting in. And the Israelites realize we're stuck out here and there's nothing to eat. And this is not a little problem. Scholars estimate that the number of Israelites when they exited Egypt was over a million. So a million people stuck out in the Middle Eastern desert which is not exactly the most hospitable terrain, with no food to eat. This is a bad thing. So they start grumbling, they start complaining, and they say to Moses, which if I'm honest, I probably would have been saying the same thing. You know, there's nothing to eat here. If I was going to die either way, I'd like to at least have died with a good meal in Egypt. What's this all about? So they're grumbling, they're complaining, this is a problem. But it's not a problem that catches God unaware. And so, verse 4, as the passage continues, the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might test them whether they'll walk in my law or not. When this problem presents itself, the people start grumbling. God says, okay, everybody, hold on. It's going to be all right. I'm God. Kind of saw it coming. It's okay. This isn't a surprise. I'm going to provide for you guys. But you know what? 
I'm going to provide for you in a way different than what you're used to. You're expecting food from the ground. I'm going to give you food from heaven instead. And we're going to set this thing up in a way that's a little different than what you're used to. Because what you're used to doing is growing food and stockpiling food. So you can go somewhere and get yourself a nice big portion. You can feel a kind of a sense of safety and a sense of security in knowing there's a big pile of food over there that you can draw from. We're not going to do it this way. I'm going to give you a portion every day. You're going to have to collect every day. Because in this, I want to teach you something about what it means to walk with me. So God has a solution to this problem. And it says a little bit later in the passage, there's some dialogue back and forth. But we're going to hop down to verse 13, uh, where it continues. And in verse 13, it reads like this. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. So the Lord gives them uh, some meat to eat. They had specifically requested meat in verse uh, 3 there. He says, I, I hear that. We can do that. And so um, quail came up, and it says this. In the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. Fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? <clears throat> which um, my, my Bible there has a little footnote, which I'll just hop down to the footnote. Um, or in Hebrew, manna. So manna is what? <laughs> That's basically it in Hebrew. What is that? That's manna. Okay. So they look at it and they say, what is that? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. He promised you bread from heaven. This is the bread from heaven. Um, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in its tent. So the next morning, God gives them the, the quail. And then there's dew that shows up on the ground. Okay, first of all, just pause. I've not spent much time in Middle Eastern deserts, but I didn't think there was dew in the desert. The whole point's there's no water there, right? So nevertheless, there's dew in the morning, and then when the dew evaporates, it leaves behind this little stuff that's edible. Surprise! And, and Moses goes, that's the bread from heaven. Remember, God said he was sending it. That's the thing. Go ahead and collect it. And he says, everybody has to go out and collect an omer's worth of it. Now, I don't know if you guys are, are using omers uh, in your life these days. I'm not using omers very much. But I measured it out, and it turns out an omer is actually not too far from this size. It's about, it's about this big. If it kind of heaped a little bit, that would be, that would be an omer. He says, everybody has to go and, and collect an omer's worth every day. Now here, we're going to pause. I'm a big fan of the visuals. So um, uh, later in the, in the passage, we're not going to flip to it and read it, but later in the passage, it describes this stuff, goes into quite a bit of detail, what it looks like, what it tastes like. And so what I want everyone to do right now is pull your phone out. I know usually we're trying to like discourage getting distracted and looking on the internet during sermon time. But what I want everyone to do, pull your phone out and, you know, go to Google or whatever your favorite search engine is and search for an image of coriander seed. Because the Bible specifically says it looks like coriander seed. Is that, is that the term that we use in the UK, coriander seed? Is that right? I know sometimes like the different 
things are, are a little different. Still wrapping my head around all that. So coriander seed, I'm trying to do it too. Of course, I can't type right well or even think about what it's spelled like. So if you pull up a picture of it, coriander seeds, these little, these little kind of round um, ball-looking things, they're pretty small, they're not very big, kind of have a golden color. Well, what the Bible says is it looked like coriander seed, except it was white. So imagine you've got these white little balls, you've got uh, you know, about this much of these white little balls, and it said it tasted like crackers or cakes made with honey. Now, do you guys have graham crackers here, or is that a states thing? That's a states thing. Okay, in the United States, I would have described these as little white graham cracker bites. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have a biscuit that's made with honey or something like that. If you don't, then uh, d don't worry about it. But that, that's what's happening here. We have little, small, biscuity, honey-flavored things that the Israelites are to go out and to collect every day. This is the manna miracle. This is what's happening. And this manna stuff, um, it winds up acting really strangely. There's all kinds of weird behavior. It, it shows up every day, but it turns out that it, like, if it's not collected, it just disappears. Like, it just evaporates and, and, and disappears. If it is collected, it doesn't keep more than a day. It goes bad, except, asterisk, weirdly, Every seventh day, it doesn't show up, and the stuff that showed up the day before keeps two days instead of one. And maybe the weirdest part is it says, regardless how big of a pile someone collected, big or small, anytime they put it in the basket, the pile would change size and always be an Omer's worth. I don't know what kind of carbs you're eating that act that way, I'm not eating carbs that are like that. This is how God provided for the Israelites. I think there's something when we are wandering through the wildernesses of our lives where God provides for us in different ways. He provides for us according to rules that are different than what we're used to. I want to keep looking for my sources of life in the same places. I'm used to a stockpile that I can go and draw from. But God does it a little differently when you're on the move through the wilderness. God, in a sense, he actually gets his hands on his provision for us in a closer way. You know, usually we can sort of accept God's blessings a little more indirectly. Lord, thank you for making farmers to grow the food for me. In this instance, it's, Lord, thank you for putting the food in my hands. And God does that in a personal, in a direct way. And you know what's amazing to me? He does it in a way that is incredibly consistent. Every single day, a million portions showed up for the Israelites for 40 years. Every single day, a million times 365 times 40. I don't even know what that number is, but it's in the billions. It's like 40 billion or something like that. 40 billion daily portions. 
I think it's important to sit in that. Because I don't know if you're like me. Here's what I kind of find myself feeling in a season like this. Oh, God, this is so hard. And yeah, I feel like I scraped together enough provision for today, but I feel like I don't have enough for tomorrow. And I'm worried that tomorrow I'm not going to have a daily portion. 40 billion daily portions. God is going to be consistent with you. You might not have enough for tomorrow. You don't need enough for tomorrow. You're going to have manna tomorrow too. You're going to have the portion you need tomorrow too. When we find ourselves wandering through the wilderness, God says, I'm going to prove myself reliable. I'm going to prove myself dependable as your provider. Now that's encouraging and powerful to me. I don't know if it is to you. But what's really crazy cool about this miracle is not only is it an incredible miracle in and of itself, there's a Jesus layer in all of this too. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of think our way through this and see where the Jesus connection is. So just a little bit uh, later down in the, in the passage, there's one more interesting instruction that God gives Moses. I made the mistake of closing my Bible. I have to flip back there. Excuse me here. Um, in verses 33 and 34, we're still in Exodus 16, God, um, God gives Moses some instructions, and this is Moses kind of walking out what God tells him to do. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Oh, it's that same daily portion, right? Can I just use this as a prop? Is this okay? The kids' cards are still in there. I promise I won't take any. Okay. Um, take an omer of manna and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Okay. So what happens is um, Aaron takes a daily portion of this stuff and puts it in the tabernacle along with the Ark of the Covenant, along with some other things, in the presence of the Lord. Now, I've always thought that's kind of a weird thing, right? Why are we doing that? Like, is, is, that, is there some significance to that? Does that matter? Is that just some random strange instruction? Well, there is some significance to it. To understand what's happening, we need to think a little bit about how the Israelites understood heaven and earth and how they understood them to interact with one another. Can I invite my, my two team members up here? We might have to do this on the floor so we have enough room. Um, I have two team members here. This is Peter and this is Jess. Peter's from Nottingham. Jess is from the States. Here, come on over here. And they're going to act out a Venn diagram for me. I tried to find some hula hoops. I couldn't fit any in my suitcase. So um, two, can you guys just make two, two circles for me here? And we're not going to, don't make them overlap here. Step over here. Turn it sideways. Good job. Yep, that's a good shoulder stretch. Um, Peter's circle is just a little bit bigger. So we're going to say that this circle represents heaven and, and the, the realm of heaven. And this represents earth and the realm of earth. Now, I'm not sure how you in your mind think about these two, but I think about them working like this. I live here on earth 
and someday I'm going to go to heaven. That's not the way that the Israelites conceived of heaven and earth. That's not how they understood them to work. They saw them working like a Venn diagram where there's a little bit of overlap. Said another way, there were places that were earth, there were places that were heaven, and there were places that were heaven and earth at the same time. The place where heaven and earth existed at the same time was this special place called the tabernacle, later the temple. It was, from earth's point of view, the temple, and specifically the Holy of Holies. But from heaven's point of view, it was actually God's throne room. This is why there's all of these interesting psalms where David says, you're enthroned above the cherubim. Well, if we see the visionary experiences that Ezekiel and other has, we see that actually living out in the dynamic spiritual realm of heaven. But in earth, it was God's presence resting above the cherubim that faced one another on the Ark of the Covenant. And so what's fascinating is what God tells Moses to do and Moses tells Aaron to do is to take the daily portion of this stuff and put it in the place that's heaven and earth. Now, what's really interesting here is this. That's good. You guys, your shoulders are hurting. You can, <laughs> good job. You did amazing here. Okay. What's, what's fascinating about that is this. Imagine we're 10 years into the wilderness experience. We have daily portions that have been showing up every day for 10 years. And imagine that you are the parents of a young child who's just become inquisitive enough to ask the question, Mom, where did this manna stuff come from? Well, you know what would actually be the most natural answer to that? From an Israelite's point of view, it's probably not the way that we think about it. They said, well, you know, God has this manna stuff in heaven. He told us he was going to give us the bread of heaven. In fact, he keeps one daily portion of it in his throne room. That's exactly what Moses told him to do, put the daily portion in the throne room. And every single day while we sleep, God takes the daily portion from the throne room and he multiplies it for every single one of us so that when we wake up, we have a daily portion from him that's multiplied from the throne room in heaven. That's actually the most natural way for them to interpret that miracle. Now, I grew up in Sunday school thinking something entirely different, that God just kind of like snapped his fingers and made it from scratch. But that actually is a misinterpretation of the biblical text. He doesn't say, I'm going to create manna from you. He says, I'm going to give you bread from heaven. And we saw exactly where the bread lives in heaven. Now, the reason all that matters is because when we come to Jesus, we can begin to understand what's happening here in a different way. In John 6, Jesus does a interesting miracle where he multiplies food to feed 5,000 people. And there's a really intentional and overt connection that Jesus makes to this manna miracle. I won't read the, the passages in their fullness, but here's a couple of um, side-by-sides 
from Exodus 16, where there's the manna miracle, and John 6, where John is recording the feeding of the 5,000. These are clues that John's actually dropping that the Israelites would have absolutely picked up on. They might seem subtle to you and me. They kind of are subtle to you and me. We didn't grow up hearing the manna story at every family meal. In Exodus 16, God says this, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. We read that verse, right? In John 6, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And John adds, he said this to test him. In Exodus 16, they gather as much as they want. It says each of them gathered as much as he could eat. In John 6, Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. Moses says in Exodus 16, let no one leave any of it left over until the morning. John 6, Jesus tells his disciples, gather up all the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. What Jesus is doing is he's not only multiplying food to feed the 5,000, he's dropping these signals as he's doing it, which are kind of telling the Israelites, the Jews who are present, who would not have missed this, this is the Exodus miracle. This is the Exodus miracle. This is the manna miracle. So as they're sitting there watching Jesus feed them, they're reflecting on their heritage and they're thinking back to this founding story of who they are as a nation. The only thing is, Jesus does it a little differently. And that's where the meaning of this miracle comes into play. Because how does the miracle happen? Remember Jesus asked this question, he's sort of like, hey, Philip, what are we going to do? Philip's like, I have no idea, there's so many people. We're not, like, we don't have that money. And honestly, there's not even bread close enough to buy anyway. What are we going to do? So Philip kind of panics, right? And if, if, if I remember correctly, it's Andrew. You should tell me if that's right. But I think it's Andrew that comes up and goes, I found a boy with lunch. He was the only person in the entire crowd that planned ahead. <laughs> I love that, right? It's like shame on, shame on the followers. Or maybe Jesus was just that captivating. People just couldn't even think about, what am I going to eat? Irrelevant, right? So, so they, they find this one small boy, and he's got five loaves and two fish. And what happens, can I actually get you guys back to make the Venn diagram? I know, I know. We'll keep it shorter this time. <laughs> Hopefully we won't dislocate any shoulders or anything. Right? <clears throat> you know what? You know what the scripture says? It says the boy took the five loaves and the two fish and he gave it to Jesus. And Jesus takes the food and multiplies it to feed the 5,000. In the Exodus miracle, there's a omer of manna in the throne room. And you might go, well, what food? is being multiplied that lives in the place of heaven and earth. Well, the food is really clear. It's five loaves, it's two fish. We know that. But the point of the miracle is this. When that little boy puts five loaves, two fish into Jesus' hands, he's putting them into the place that's heaven and earth. 
He's putting them in the place where heaven and earth come together because Jesus is the place that heaven and earth have come together. Jesus is now the one that multiplies and feeds us from what we need. And in fact, it goes even one step further than that. Because the people who are there, they understand that that's what's happening. And after the miracle, they're having some conversations. People come up to Jesus, and they're wrestling with it. And they're like, I don't get it. Moses gave us bread from the wilderness. Are you saying you're as good as Moses? And all this. They're like kind of piecing it together, but they're not seeing it right. They're not seeing, oh my goodness, Jesus isn't Moses. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the joining point of heaven and earth. And Jesus says, actually, you know, not only am I the tabernacle, I am, but I'm also the bread that came down from heaven. I'm also actually the thing sitting in the tabernacle that's going to be multiplied into your life. See, what, what the Exodus miracle tells us, thank you, you can now actually be done, done. <laughs> what the Exodus miracle points to and what Jesus fulfills is this. When the people of God are caught wandering through the wildernesses of life, which is where we are, is it not? There's two things that we need to keep in mind. That faithfulness of God is going to work for us. He hasn't become less faithful just because he sent Jesus. If he did it four billion portions before, he'll do four billion portions plus for us. He's not less faithful. But what's happened is this. First of all, we have to realize the one we walk with is the one where heaven and earth come together. You're not wandering through the wilderness alone. We don't have a tent that we can point to and say the provision comes from that place. What we have is a person we point to. And that person is the place of heaven and earth. And lo and behold, he promises he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us, even to the end of the age. You walk with the one who's heaven and earth. I don't know about you, but when I face the, the, the wilderness to wander through, knowing that I'm walking with the one who's heaven and earth through the wilderness gives me quite a bit of hope. It gives me something to hang on to. And we need something to hang on to in times like this. Don't we? I do. <laughs> the second thing that this miracle tells us is this. God will provide for us, but the portion that's his provision is Jesus himself. It's not just that Jesus is the place of heaven and earth that we walk with, though that's true, and probably that should be good enough. But it's that Jesus gives you himself every day. The portion when you wake up in the morning that's waiting for you is Jesus Christ. It's not just bread. Bread would be good. <laughs> it's God himself. Do you know that? Did you know God allocates for you a daily portion of himself? Did you know you wake up every morning and God already has placed on the ground of the day ahead of you 
himself buried in the middle of it. And what our job is, is our job is to do what the Israelites did. It's to go out and collect it. The manna appeared every day, but if they didn't go get it, it would evaporate. The manna appeared every day, but if they tried to stockpile it, it would rot. There is a consistent practice that God brings them to. Go and collect my provision today. God says the same for us. What he gave you yesterday is not going to sustain you today. If you try to make it work, it's going to rot. It's not going to work. But I promise you, there's a portion for you today. If you'll go collect it. If you'll reach toward the Lord and say, God, where are you today? I need you to be my provision today. And so what this whole story gives me is it gives me, first of all, an expectancy. Jesus is going to show up today. He's done it billions of times in the past. He hasn't forgotten about me. I walk with him every day. It gives me an expectancy. It also gives me an action step. Wake up and find Jesus in my day today. Because that's not a guaranteed. It's guaranteed he'll be there. It's not guaranteed I'll pick him up. And that doesn't mean I do anything, you know, of my own works or anything. I don't make him show up. But I do have to choose and go collect him. You know what I've found? If I'll embrace the day-by-day collecting that happens in this season, and I'll not fast-forward myself into the future, which is so easy right now, isn't it? It's so easy to, to do that. But if we'll actually listen to those words of Jesus, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough problems of its own. Stay present in the day-to-day. If I'll stay in the present day-to-day and I'll focus on gathering the presence of God into my life today, you know what I found? I found that in this season, he's so incredibly generous. He is so generous. And this brings us to these wonderful things, these wonderful disciplines, engaging with the Word. Go collect the presence of God in the Word. You know one of the things that I love? Like, the worship this morning was awesome, by the way. That was so great, right? I love that I, I can listen to any worship anytime I ever want. Have you heard of YouTube? <laughs> it's all up there. You don't even have to pay anymore. You used to have to buy the CDs even or whatever. You don't even have to do that anymore, right? Worship daily. Pray daily. God is hungering to meet us in that place. He is. Go out and collect it. So there's expectancy that gets formed in my heart. There's an action that's formed to do. And there's also a focus that this points me back to, which is this. It's ultimately about presence, not about process. This is the best book that's ever been written. But this is a book. It's not the presence of God. It's one that God will uniquely use. God breathed this book out himself. 
But the book is not going to give you what you need. It's the presence of God that's going to give you what you need. Prayer is the most incredible, beautiful discipline. I can't even tell you guys how much I love prayer. It's not the praying that helps me. It's God that helps me. And praying is a great way to get to him. Worship's a great way to get to him. Serving is a great way to get to him. And on and on and on. It's not about the process. It's about his presence. God's presence personally led the Israelites through the wilderness. The wilderness is hard because you never have a map. You can never look around at the territory and go, oh, I know what's around that curve. Because you're always somewhere you've never been before. That's going to continue to be our lives for a while. But the map that you follow through the wilderness is God's presence. And if you'll follow God's presence, he'll keep you safe as you go. You know how that whole thing where God shows up as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? Have you ever wondered about why that? I mean, it's kind of dramatic. Would make for a good movie if they'd ever make a movie of it since, you know, Charlton Heston or whatever. It's not just a dramatic thing. A Middle Eastern desert can get up to like really unbearably hot during the day. I would say the number, but I only know it in Fahrenheit now that I think about it. So like, what, 45 Celsius or something like that? Maybe higher? 50 Celsius. Up, and it can get lower than freezing at night. What do you need if you have a million people you're trying to wander through the wilderness? You need a cloud to take the edge of the heat off. You need a fire to keep you from freezing. The presence of God showed up in the way that made the wilderness hospitable. And that's why they had to stay so close to him. As soon as he starts moving, they start moving. As soon as he moves, they move. His presence is our map in this place. We can look to the side. That's scary. That's bad. That's hard. It all is. But it's actually his presence that converts this inhospitable environment to one that's safe that we can live in. Go and gather his presence today. Let's take a little bit of time and, and pray for one another. Can we do that? Do we, I think we have the time to do that. Um, I'd love to just invite everyone to, to stand if we could. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.